1: For many German-Americans enlisted in the armies of the United States during the Civil War, I fight mit Siegel was a proud boast. But Franz Siegel's corps, the 11th Corps, the Army of the Potomac, has been the subject of derisive commentary, not just from fellow soldiers in the army at the time, but from generations of historians since then. History professor James Pula, Takes a fresh look at the much maligned unit in Under the Crescent Moon with the Eleventh Corps in the Civil War. Volume one covers from the defense of Washington to Chancellorsville in 1862 and 63, and we'll talk about it with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
2: Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no
0: o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on a balmy night. The last Wednesday in March 2018 Uh, is spring actually here, perhaps. It's supposed to be, looks like it's 70 degrees outside, very Comfortable. Major League Baseball is getting underway uh, in another day. And uh, it's a pleasant time of year. But pleasant or not, I'm still not speaking for East Carolina University or the Brewster Building or for Major League Baseball or any other institution, just for myself. And likewise, my guest will do the same, speak only for himself, as we always do on the show. The, uh, the lots of sports going on that concerns me particularly. The basketball college tournament is in, coming down to the final four, and my team is in it, not the East Carolina uh, Pirates, who I don't think won four games all year, but rather the University of Michigan Wolverines, my alma mater. This weekend they play uh, Chicago Loyola, which is the darling of the tournament, the underdog supported by Sister Jean, a nun who is in her 90s. Uh, My mom is in her 90s, rides her exercise bike every day, and she could take Sister Jean to the mat without any problem. And that's what Michigan will have to do to Loyola this weekend. Um, But we'll we'll just uh, have to wait and see how that works out. Here on campus, it's been a exciting to see how much there is to do compared to when I started here, and this is shocking to say it, 15 years ago, when we had uh, a good lecture, it was kind of a big deal. Uh, Last week, we had the U.S. ambassador to Russia during the Reagan years come and give a talk, and they didn't even announce it. I missed it uh, because it was barely, uh, barely publicized. But then uh, this past week, yesterday, uh, Professor Todd Bennett in in our department here talked about the uh, CIA and its hunt for submarines, Russian submarines in this case, Soviet submarines during the Cold War underwater. Uh, It's a very interesting topic. He got a big grant to work on it. Today, uh, Charles Calhoun came back to give a talk on his book about U.S. grant, which uh, we, we discussed here on the show several months ago in January the new book this year on the presidency of U.S. grant, and it was good to have Chuck back in town. A lot of his colleagues were at the lecture, including some retirees coming back to see him, so it was it was fun and great to hear him talk about his work. Uh, of course, we get to do that here on the show at, at length, but it was good to hear him again discuss it with a... Uh, Uh, general audience, and it was really fun for me to ride a bicycle over there from uh, the flood lot as it is colloquially colloquially known. The parking lot where I park my car every day tends to get underwater if there's a heavy rain, uh, and there are alarms that go off. In theory, if it's raining so hard, your car might actually float away. That has never actually happened, but there's always a chance. Uh, I'm too cheap to buy an A parking pass. Plus, I need the exercise, so I buy a B level parking pass and park in the flood lot. And it's a long walk to the library where the uh, where where the the activities go on, the lectures. But as I mentioned last week, we've now got these bicycles all over campus. Lime bike, maybe you have it in your neighborhood. And I've started using them today. I took my phone out with the app using the lingo of the young people of the day I uh, took a picture of the squiggly code on the back of the bike and it gave out a tone and a m- mechanical lock undid itself before my eyes and I could ride the bike away and I got to ride to the library then back to the flood lot where my car was and get it ready for driving back here for the show so I feel like I'm living in the the 21st century uh, for the first time. I'm also assigning an electronic textbook for the first time uh, for the fall. I'll talk about that another time. If you have any thoughts about that, I've asked my students, and they're they're mixed on the topic. Uh, on electronic textbooks as opposed to paper ones, uh, send an email. Let me know what you think. While you're at it, go to impedimentsofwar.org and uh, check out the Schedule of people coming up on the show. Next week, Brian Downey, the webmaster of Antietam on the Web, will be with us. The following week, uh, Bill Penn and Daryl Smith of the Cynthia Battlefields Foundation. Uh, William Penn is the author of Kentucky Rebel Town, Civil War Battles of Cynthia and Harrison County. And then uh, April 18th, Barry Craig, author of Kentucky's Rebel Press. We've got two Kentucky... Uh, topics in a row writing about the pro-confederate media during the secession crisis and I've got a number of other interesting people who uh, I'm just working out which day they're going to be here uh, getting that lined up Uh, so we'll have them on shortly as well while you're at impedimentsofwar.org you can contribute to the show go to the donation button press the button send some money through PayPal and help me buy books for the show uh, or whatever I want to buy, perhaps a Subway sandwich like the one I had for dinner five minutes ago. Anything is fair game. The money is not tax-deductible. Now, just before we get to tonight's book, I want to say a, a word about it. Every week I read a book for the show, and uh, sometimes I'll, I'll say to my wife, you know, oh I've got to read the, the book. I, I can't stop and talk now. I'm busy. And with a hint of irritation in the voice, and I realize nobody wants to hear that. Uh, oh, I have to read too many Civil War books. You know, Oh, I'm a, I'm a beer tester. I have to taste too much beer. I have to eat too many cookies for my job. Uh, no one wants to hear you complain about reading Civil War books. So it's not a complaint, but an observation that within the first five pages, I can usually tell if the book is going to be a job to get through, worth doing to make a good show, or if it's going to be the kind of book that I wish I had more than just a few days to to read and savor and really read in detail, Uh, this is partly a function of the author's style, which is a matter of taste, and partly a function of whether I feel I'm learning anything from the book, which is partly a function of topic. If I've read a lot about it, it's less likely I'll find something new, but it's also produced by whether the author has an idea, uh, something to say about a topic, not simply reporting on it. This is one of the distinctions between professional and amateur historians, is is a peer-reviewed book only gets published if the author has something new to say. Well, tonight's book, uh, it falls in the latter category, Uh, the style, pleasing, makes me want to read more. And it has uh, something, something to argue, something to, worth learning and discussing. And I wish I had more than just a week to, to rush through it. Let's talk to the author. Uh, his name is James Pula. He is a professor. Uh, let's, let's let him tell us. Uh, Jim, are you there? Yep, I'm there. Hi, Hi Gary. Nice to meet you. Oh, good. It, it, Jerry, not Gary. Jerry, um, right. <laughs> and let me ask you about your last name, make sure I'm sa- – could you pronounce it so I'm saying it right? Pula. Pula, okay, yep. got it right. Um, and you – I'm checking the dust jacket uh, – tu- tu- the professor of history at Purdue University Northwest. Yes, uh, sir. Is, is that like um, – I used to teach a few classes at IPFW when I was in Fort Wayne. Yes, is, exactly. is Purdue Northwest the same
3: kind of setup? Yeah, exactly. It's one of the five regional campuses. Well, if you count the main campus, five of Purdue University, it's about, oh, an hour east of Chicago, pretty close to the uh, Michigan border and Lake Michigan. So it's northwestern Indiana.
1: Okay. So are you in the central time zone? Are you in the penumbra of Chicago? Yep.
3: We're in the central time zone, which causes all kinds of problems because we're just inside the border and a lot of our students and faculty live in the eastern time zone. So it takes a little adjusting, but we manage. Well,
1: back when I lived in Indiana, it was back in the, the days when they didn't follow daylight savings time and, and half the year we'd be on one zone and half the year on the other. And that was confusing.
3: That was confusing, but from our standpoint, it was a little bit better because uh, during football season, we were on the same time zone as the main campus. Now we're uh. always different. <laughs> so to go to a noon football game, you have to get up about six in the morning. <laughs> that that That's problematic. I can see that. Yeah.
1: So uh, what brought you to writing about the 11th
3: Corps and the Army of the Potomac? Well, I was interested in the Civil War, and I was reading in high school Bruce Catton's books. And uh, when I got out of college, my parents gave me uh, Mark Boatner's Civil War dictionary as a graduation present. And leafing through there, I ran across uh, General Krzyzynovsky, who I was surprised I had never heard of since I had read about the Civil War. So I kind of got interested in him and in graduate school. I did a biography of him as my dissertation that involved a lot of work on the uh, 11th Corps that he served in. Uh, So I became interested in the Corps and some of the people whose memoirs uh, I read and so forth. And uh, uh, it's sort of a mushroom from there, I guess, over the years. I was lucky to be in Washington, D.C. for about 10 years, so I had easy access Mm. to the National Archives and some of the other resources around there and I actually did research probably over a a total of maybe 20 years or so for before this finally came to fruition. Hmm. So uh, talk a
1: little bit uh, about what people have traditionally written about the 11th
3: Corps. Well most people um, who write about the 11th Corps uh, talk about it in the wake of Chancellorsville, the stereotype of the 11th Corps running away at Chancellorsville and then that following through in Gettysburg and running away and then being sent west because the Army of the Potomac essentially didn't want them, um, in which the latter part of that, to a certain extent, is true. Uh, but what I've tried to show is that <clears throat> the 11th and 12th Corps were both somewhat persona non grata in the Army of the Potomac because they had served under Pope. And Pope, of course, was a rival to McClellan, and much of the high command in the Army of the Potomac were McClellanites. So they never really accepted the 11th and 12th Corps as part of the original Army of the Potomac. And that's one reason why those two, other than the fact that they were the two smallest corps, were sent west in 1863, I think the other, the other element in this is the atmosphere in the country in the 1850s. You have a political party, usually called the Know Nothings, uh, who were fairly strong and significant into the mid and late 1850s. And they elected some senators, several state governments were controlled by them. They were essentially an anti-immigrant party, and the Germans, as the largest, most uh, prominent group of newcomers in the 1850s bore the brunt of much of their uh, their anger. So you had a combination of anti-immigrant in general, anti-Catholic and anti-German in particular sentiments in the country. Uh, and then you had the fact that much of the Army of the Potomac viewed them as um, interlopers, uh, not really part of the Army, uh, which led which created an atmosphere: if something goes wrong, you know who you're going to blame. And certainly at Chancellorsville, something went wrong.
1: Well, that that's certainly true. And we'll we'll take a short break. Come back and talk about uh, uh, more about the the lead up to Chancellorsville and what happened at that battle. Our guest tonight, James Pula, is the author of Under the Crescent Moon with the 11th Corps in the Civil War. We're talking about volume one tonight. Maybe we'll talk about volume two as well. And we'll do that when we come back. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: stimulating talk it gets those synapses in
4: your brain firing really fast
0: all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com psych up
2: live with host dr suzanne phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective it's a look at what matters to us why do we laugh
0: that's p r o k o p o w i c z g at e c u dot e d u. Now back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with James S. Pula, author of Under the Crescent Moon with the Eleventh Corps in the Civil War. In particular, I'm looking at Volume One from the Defenses of Washington to Chancellorsville, 1862 to 63. Uh, Jim, we were talking about the the Know Nothing Party and the the prejudice against immigrants in the 1850s that contributes to the Army of the Potomac's attitude toward the German, uh, to the, the largely German 11th Corps. Uh, that brings up two questions. One is is how what percent of the unit was actually German American, and the second question is what do we mean by German, given that there's no Germany
3: at this era? So yeah. how how many and what does it mean? Well, those are two very good questions. <clears throat> Let me try the second one first. Sure. Uh, you know there was no Germany as you as you rightly pointed out. So when we say German, we're talking largely of German speaking peoples from the various German states including portions of Switzerland and, of course, Austria and so forth. Uh, essentially, people from Central Europe with uh, Germanic background, although the 11th Corps also included uh, some Hungarians and Poles and Italians, uh, other people who had fought in the democratic and nationalistic revolutions in the 1840s, and when they failed, then came to the United States. So we're largely talking about Germanic- German-speaking people. Uh, and of course they're not all immigrants some of them are sons of uh, earlier immigrants or even grandsons of earlier immigrants if you well there was a um, memo prepared uh, um, by general hooker right after Chancellorsville, and he listed the different regiments in the 11th corps that he considered to be german and then he also listed a few that were mixed So when you're talking about German, you're talking about largely uh, either immigrants or uh, first-generation German-speaking people. Uh, So if you go by that, about 43 percent, roughly, of the 11th Corps could be said to be made up of German soldiers. And that's obviously a rough estimate because Mm -hmm. if you take the 26th Wisconsin, for example, there were uh, eight companies of largely German-speaking people. Uh, two companies that were mixed, mostly Native Americans, who were thrown in. So unless you go through every regimental muster roll and count every single person and uh, where they were born and what their name looks like, that's probably about as close as you're going to get is uh, 43% uh, of the Corps. But one reason why it was Let me interrupt.
1: When you you said uh, Native Americans, you're using
3: that in the 19th century. Yes, yes. Uh, People born in the United States who were not of German heritage in this instance, yeah.
1: Right, not not yeah. American Indians. So exactly,
3: no. exactly. Okay. Not, not Indian we, we get so people.
1: used to using the language of the era we read about.
3: sometimes <laughs> right. We, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you, to, go ahead. Yeah, we need to explain things sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Part of its reputation is that, you know, originally a lot of the German regiments were segregated, if we can use that term, uh, into uh, a division led by Ludwig Blenker, another German uh, emigre who settled in the United States. And it was generally referred to as Blenker's German division. Uh, and that really formed the nucleus of the corps that then participated under John Pope. So it already had, uh, at that time, uh, almost 100% German uh, soldiers in it, and then later, as other units were added, that became more and more diluted. But the reputation as a German outfit continued even even afterwards.
1: I, you made an interesting point in the book that uh, the the American corruption of Deutsch uh, for German into Dutch it, it carried becomes a slang term and, and sort of pejorative term for Germans. Uh, Yeah, exactly. They're referred to as Dutch.
3: And this happened before the Civil War, even Uh, people being referred to as Dutch because of the German word uh, Deutsch or Deutschland for Germany uh, being corrupted into English. So that uh, uh, sometimes when you read things about the colonial era, even in Pennsylvania, people are referred to as as Dutch, and they're really not Dutch, they're German. So, again, you have to be a little careful of the terminology and what it really represents in a given period. Now,
1: let me ask you about the research behind this book. Since you're you talking in the introduction about how, how you've read all these traditional versions where the the German Eleventh Corps runs away at Chancellorsville, runs away at Gettysburg, and mainstream historians more or less just retell the tale – uh, you sought to do something different. What what kind of sources do you have to go to to try to revise this version?
3: Well, what I tried to do as much as possible is to go back to the uh, original sources. You know, obviously, when you're using the uh, after-action reports and the official records, sometimes you have to take them with a little grain of salt because uh, usually the writer doesn't want to look bad. But, mm-hmm. if you go back and look at as many diaries, newspaper articles, uh, articles in the National Tribune where veterans would write in and debate things if you if you get enough of those together, you begin to get an idea of in general what you think may have happened, uh, and it's it's always difficult because you take one person in a regiment, let's say at Chancellorsville, uh, you're in a line in a regiment, maybe a couple of ranks deep, and Part of it's in the forest, and part of it is out in plain view. On one end of the line, somebody writes that they fought valiantly and fell back slowly. On the other end of the line, they said, oh, our line was broken, and and my company ran away. Well, two people in the same regiment might really have two different experiences, depending on where they are and what happened to them. So you try to piece it together like a puzzle, and in the end, uh, I always tell my students uh, historians are like Judge Judy on TV. Uh, you you ask questions and you try to gather evidence and then you come up with the best plausible answer to what happened that you can possibly think of. So uh, I was trying to be Judge Judy here and go back to the original uh, materials. And you now some of it's kind of interesting. Uh, historians don't use numbers a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. We throw numbers around sometimes. Uh, like oh, so many casualties and so many this, and so many that., uh, but one of the things that struck me as I started to look at this uh, is some of the numbers. For example, if you look at some of the authors who write about Gettysburg, one of the things they point out a lot is, oh, the eleventh corps had a lot of a lot of people who were captured. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do they base that on? They base that on, Uh, Usually, the data from the official records, and usually it's not really captured, it's captured and missing. Well, if you're fighting north of town and the battlefield at the end of the day is in the control of the Confederates, then some of those people who are listed as missing are dead. Some of them are wounded. Some of them maybe have escaped and show up uh, later on. So they're not all captured. And interestingly, if you look at Gettysburg, for example, the number or the percentage I should say the percentage of captured and missing in the first corps on July one was higher than it was in the eleventh corps
4: hmm.
3: no No one would ever suggest that the first Corps didn't fight well, but we use the same data then to impugn the 11th Corps, saying, wow, they lost all of these prisoners, without thinking about what that number really means. So one of the things I tried to do was really compare casualties. Uh, Busey and Martin is probably the best source we have today, so I use that a lot for Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a source that good for Chancellorsville. But I tried to use some of these numbers to to show that perhaps things were a little bit different than they're usually portrayed in the broad strokes that some authors use. Speaking of numbers, and and surprising numbers
1: at that, I wanted to ask you about the, uh, uh, during the period when General Hooker was in charge of the Army of the Potomac, uh, so we're in the spring of 1863, after the Battle of of Fredericksburg, and Burnside's Mm -hmm. been relieved of command, now, now, Hooker's in charge. He's rebuilding the army, rebuilding their morale. Gives them core badges to wear, uh, soft bread, uh, better equipment, training, and also uh, there's there's a numerical assessment, something that strikes fear in the hearts of academics today as people try to put numbers <laughs> on what we do. But there, you show, uh, taken from from General Orders Number 18 on March 3rd, a numerical assessment of the various corps of the Army of the Potomac and I don't recall seeing this uh, before uh, that under figure for instruction and discipline, 11th Corps has a score of 105 which is the best in the Army. Yeah, you know, that, that, Tell me about that. Do you know anything about how they got that
3: number? Uh, these numbers came from a couple of early studies uh, on the Battle of Gettysburg relying on some of the material that had been submitted, I think it was to the Adjutant General's office, although I could be mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, that's where those particular figures come from. But one thing you frequently hear when people talk about the origin of the 11th Corps, uh, mm-hmm. especially when it joins the Army of the Potomac, uh, a lot of authors has, have suggested that, well, uh, these were new and experienced people, Um, Well, they had fought against Jackson in the Valley. They had fought at Second Bull Run. And if you look at the regimental commanders and the division commanders, virtually almost all of the Germans who were associated with division brigade and regimental command, almost all of them had fought in the German revolutions. A lot of the soldiers had been in Uh, one or another army in Europe before they migrated. So there were a lot of people there who had previous military experience, and drilling was not really all that foreign to them. If you look at the American commanders, some of them had previous either militia uh, experience, but they were a little bit less experienced than the German commanders. But nevertheless, some of them had served in the militia. A couple of them had served in the uh, Mexican War. So, so this was not really a group of newcomers. These were people who uh, probably had a fair good, fairly good uh, discipline in camp, and they were accredited with that by by people who
1: reviewed them. The uh, this is a good segue into who commands the corps. I said in the introduction, I mentioned Franz Siegel, but he's uh, by the spring of sixty-three, he's no longer in command. Yeah. Uh, if let's start at the top with uh, uh, the with, with the corps commander at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. Mm.
3: Uh, Howard is brought in. Uh, you mentioned Hooker's reforms. Uh, think- Siegel uh, had somewhat of an ego and felt that his corps wasn't big enough and wanted to see it enlarged. Uh, and when that didn't happen, he resigned. So Howard is. Uh, the ranking major general without a corps command, and he had complained uh, to Hooker about it. So Hooker brings him in and makes him the commander of the 11th Corps. Um, and this is not exactly a good marriage from the beginning. Uh, not that Howard isn't a good soldier. He was a West Point uh, graduate and everything, uh, had a fairly good reputation on the peninsula. Um, but he just never really fit with the 11th Corps. The Germans in the 11th Corps were hoping that Karl Schurz would be the new uh, commander. Some of them liked von Steinwehr. Uh, von Steinwehr had been the uh, Schertz's superior in the German revolutions, so he didn't really want to serve under Schertz. So there's a whole bunch of internal turmoil. Uh, so Howard comes in, and apparently he knew a little bit of German but never tried to use it. Uh, and was overly religious, uh posting religious tracts outside of his tent every day and so forth, uh which didn't go over well with a lot of the free thinking Germans and didn't go over very well with a lot of the american soldiers uh people born in the United States at that time either so there's kind of a a disconnect between Howard and the corps uh to begin with, and then I think that's magnified. Uh, He brings in uh, Francis Barlow from outside of the Corps uh, to command a unit. He brings in two or three other people, Charles Devons, to command one of the divisions. These people displace people who were already in command. Uh, Devins, for example, displaces um, um, McLean from Ohio, whose troops thought very highly of him. Uh, So going into the Chancellorsville campaign... You've got a lot of new people in the structure, some of whom are from outside. A lot of the troops aren't all that happy that their familiar commanders have been either demoted or not promoted. So there's a little bit of edginess, let's say, uh, within the Corps to begin with, even before Chancellorsville. Uh, Since you were studying Oliver O. Howard, the
1: the commander of the Corps, I'm guessing you got to go to uh, Brunswick, Maine and Bowdoin College ah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. the Howard Papers. That was my daughter's uh, older daughter's school so
3: I spent many ah, okay.
1: many oh, happy yeah, days. I, I went And I
3: looked at his papers there and also since you uh, mentioned you went to Michigan my sister will be happy she did too. Uh, uh, at the uh, archives at the University of Michigan they have mm-hmm. some of Howard's papers and they also have a uh, the diary, the Eleventh Corps Diary that was kept during the war, which is kind of interesting, especially when you get to Gettysburg and you have all the controversy about what happens on on July first you know you know everybody had a different watch at that time, so it's hard to tell what time things happened but it's interesting <laughs> to look at the log that was kept that day and the Times that they give for when different things happen in the logs, because at least at least the log is consistent with itself. So you can get some mm-hmm. general idea of when things are happening in relation to other things. And that's fairly interesting. I've never seen anybody use that before. Uh, the, a real
1: opportunity there to, yeah. to add what we know. Uh, we just have a, a minute before the next break. I want to Put in a quick word about one of the regiments in the army, the 100 or uh, in the corps, 154th New York. You acknowledge mm-hmm. Mark Dunkelman in your acknowledgments. Yes. Uh, I don't know anyone who has a closer relationship with a Civil War regiment than than Mark does with the 154th New York. Uh, is there? A, did you ever have a question about that unit that he could not answer?
3: I don't think so. No. <laughs> uh, he sent me some photographs and he's uh, he's just absolutely amazing. Every unit should have a historian uh, like him. And of course, he's also behind the uh, famous mural at Gettysburg on the wall as well, which I think uh, they've just recently uh, restored. Uh, I understand from him that they have a building now that uh, they're going to either own or rent part of it to start a museum on the 154th. Also, so uh, he continues to be amazingly active. Uh, he
1: absolutely is. He's been on the show a number of times for his different books, and and uh, and as as a team, the listeners helped contribute to uh, help preserve the the, the historical yeah uh, building in in uh, County in, in No New York. that's the yeah. one I was talking about. I couldn't remember which whether it was a government building or a church or what. Right. So we've worked on that. Well, we're yeah. going to take another short break. We'll come back in just a yeah. moment talking tonight with James S. Pula, author of Under the Crescent Moon with the 11th Corps in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet
4: talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with James Pula, author of Under the Crescent Moon with the 11th Corps in the Civil War. We've been talking about the origins of the unit, its its ethnic background, its role as an outsider in the Army of the Potomac that has led uh, both contemporaries and subsequent historians to uh, write very critically of how the unit performed. Uh, uh, we talked about that in our first two segments. Here in our last segment, we need to talk about the Battle of Chancellorsville, where the unit's reputation, for better or worse, uh, is first formed. The... Uh, 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 spoiler alert for those who have not followed the Battle of Chancellorsville: the Eleventh Corps gets uh, surprised and attacked in the flank and driven uh, across the battlefield. The in in the popular version, the Eleventh Corps is completely unprepared and just sitting there boiling coffee, and suddenly Stonewall Jackson comes out of the woods, and uh, uh, no one expects it, and it's a huge disaster for the for the Union forces. One of the things your book makes very clear is actually there was a lot of warning uh, for the corps that uh, Stonewall Jackson or somebody in gray was was moving toward the unit's flank. Could you yeah, talk about were, about the the, the day yeah. before the, the day before the attack, which began in the evening?
3: Yeah, so the uh, the day before the uh, the attack the um, hookers moving his forces forward and then decides eventually to retreat and to go back into essentially the positions he held the day before. But on the morning of the attack, the attack happens later in the afternoon, 5.30, 6 o'clock at night. But on the morning of the attack, um, from General um, Sickles' headquarters, uh, the 3rd Corps, they could see Confederates marching off to the south and west and Siegel actually, uh, Siegel, I keep saying Siegel, Sickles actually uh, advances some units to engage the rear guard of what was actually Jackson's flanking march. But from there west, you have a whole series of a couple of dozen uh, reports that have survived at least, there probably were more, of people sending back warnings from the picket line, from scouts, that uh, Confederates were moving off to the west. And this went on all morning and into the early afternoon. Uh, Shirts uh, sent out some scouts. They were fired upon by Confederates. They come back and reported. But the problem, I think, was that Howard had it firmly in his mind that the Confederates were retreating. Uh, initially, Hooker's headquarters thought the Confederates would probably retreat, Um And Howard had it in his mind that that was what was happening, so he didn't take it seriously. And, in fact, he even ordered uh, Schertz and um, Charles Devins uh, not to send out any more scouts, that they were aware of what was going on. Uh, Later in the afternoon, he ordered the troops to stand down and have dinner early, because they'd probably have to get up early in the morning to pursue the Confederates the next day. And then when General Sickles calls for reinforcements, uh, Howard sends Barlow's brigade to reinforce the 3rd Corps, uh, his only reserve. Uh, and he makes no provision whatsoever for replacing it or for contracting his lines to account for the fact that that, that group is now missing. And on top so, of that, so, well, uh, he goes let me with, just
1: Yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, just, just to align in, in our yeah. listeners' minds— uh, this is in, in May of 1863, and Hooker, in general, is marching around Lee's yeah. left or western flank. But at this point, the Army of the Potomac is facing south, uh, so, so its line runs from east to west, and, and the 11th Corps is on the far right of the line, on the western end. Western end, exactly. And as they and as the scouts see troops moving from east to west across their front those are the troops that howard and and hooker for that matter think are retreating back toward richmond when we already we know what that they're going off to the west end of the union line to to launch a flank attack
3: yeah yeah and i I was
1: amazed how many reports you had of, of of going back to the headquarters saying hey these guys are marching to the west
3: yeah yeah i didn't count them but there's at least a couple of dozen and there's really two alternatives They can Mm -hmm. be marching south and west to go off to Gordonsville or to one of the Confederate supply bases in that area uh, and eventually swing south toward Richmond, or they can be marching south to Richmond. And if you look at, as you said, the 11th Corps is facing south. Mm -hmm. They're facing Confederate pickets and lines that are opposite them. Jackson's march as he goes west, it turns south for a while at Catherine Furnace so if you are in the third corps headquarters where general sickles is you see the southerners marching directly south and he reports to hooker that they're marching south everybody assumes they're retreating and that's when sickles decides to engage the rear guard well after they go south for a little while they turn west behind the cover of the trees and it's the eleventh corps pickets who are out a mile or so ahead of the lines that spot them running, uh, uh, marching off to the west uh, and report this back repeatedly to, to headquarters. When you get later into the afternoon, uh, as Jackson marches around the west and then begins to head north behind the flank of the 11th Corps, you have several reports from the pickets there that the Confederates are forming. Uh, Captain Hubert Dilger, who most of your listeners uh, probably know, the famous artillery uh, Mm -hmm. captain in the 11th Corps, hops on his horse and takes an orderly and trots out beyond the 11th Corps line into the woods. Uh, And he's shot at and cut off and has to go north toward the river before he can go east. Uh, And he ends up at Hooker's headquarters and says, you know, there's Confederates over there in the woods and they're forming for an attack. Uh, and he's told, you know, not to worry about it, to go back to his unit. So he goes to Howard's headquarters. Howard's not there. He's off accompanying Barlow's brigade. So there's plenty of warning, but uh, General Howard simply is convinced the Confederates are retreating, uh, not to worry, and to compound the problem, not only does he go off. Uh, with Barlow's brigade to support the Third Corps, and only comes back a few minutes before the attack. But before he leaves, he leaves an order for the troops to be fed and to stand down. So you start getting all of the commissary wagons and cattle and stuff coming up close to the line, so that when the attack begins, you've got all of these um, uh, support wagons and and cows and everything up, mixed up very close to the front line, which makes it even doubly hard for the troops who are trying to deploy to meet the attack uh, to actually get in any kind of reasonable semblance of a line. So there's surprise, but it's not surprise in the sense of no one knowing they're there. It's surprise more of the army commander than it is necessarily of the troops, if that makes any sense. It does. Were were any regiments facing westward
1: toward Jackson's attack? Any local commanders turn their units 90 degrees to be ready for this?
3: At the very end of the line, the very western end, the open flank, there Mm -hmm. were two regiments of Vangosa's brigade that were um, uh, brought back facing west at the end of the line, uh, refused at Mm -hmm. the end of the line. One of them was a relatively small veteran regiment. The other one was a a fairly large, brand-new regiment of 90-day troops uh, who hadn't been in action before. The only other troops actually facing west where the Confederate attack came from were two regiments um, from Carl Schurz's division. Uh, Schurz had asked Howard for permission to move one of his brigades to face west when all of these different uh, warnings started coming in. And Howard said no. So Schurz took his two reserve regiments on his own authority, the 58th New York and 26th Wisconsin, and had them, sent them a little bit farther north and to the west facing west. So, and they were separated from the other two regiments by probably close to a mile. So, there was no continuous front facing West, just two regiments at the end of the line, and then two behind the line, uh, probably three quarters of a mile to a mile away. so was was the corps
1: as badly destroyed, damaged, disrupted by the attack as as many accounts tell us? Well, it suffered
3: it suffered greatly. Um, I think it's credited. If I remember, uh, correctly, officially with about 18 and a half, 18.6 uh, percent casualties, which puts it right about in the middle of the uh, Union Corps for Chancellorsville. But if you deduct Barlow's brigade, which went off to support the Third Corps and was never really involved in the fight at all, and you only count the troops who actually were there and were engaged. Uh, it lost about 24 percent, which is almost a quarter uh, of all of its troops. Um, you don't you don't lose 24 percent when you're running away. So clearly somebody was doing doing a lot of fighting here, and they held up Jackson for a couple of hours, uh, eventually falling back to a position where they uh, ran into reinforcements from some of the other corps and were able to stop the Confederate. Uh, attack at that point. Now,
1: since we only have a few minutes left, uh, and I want to assure listeners the description of the attack, of the the day of the attack, and then the attack itself really forms the heart in many ways of this book, and it's worth reading in detail. But just because we're, we're just on to the last two minutes, was there an immediate reaction in the Army of the
3: Potomac that, uh, oh, the Dutchman ran? Uh, yeah, very that- definitely. Uh, most of the rest of the Army of the Potomac blamed the 11th Corps in general and the Germans in specific. Uh, Howard, uh, much to his discredit, tended to promote... Uh, That, that, well, you know, the men ran away, it wasn't really me, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Although there were a few people, Thomas Marr, for example, the famous Irish leader, uh, was in charge of the provost guard along the Rappahannock River. Uh, I'm sorry, the Rapidan River. And uh, he wrote later on in an Irish newspaper saying that uh, he was in command of the Provost Guard, and they were rounding up people from who left the battlefield. And uh, I'm paraphrasing him. He said that uh, very, very few of them had a Teutonic accent. And there were a few other people. Uh, the Confederate, E.P. Alexander, after the war, wrote that uh, no troops positioned the way the 11th Corps were could possibly have withstood the attack. So there were some people, uh, Abner Doubleday was another, who defended them, but by and large they became the scapegoats because of Chancellorsville, and that carried through until they eventually moved west. Well, the, the
1: uh, you you talked then about the march to Gettysburg, and, and we're not really able to go further into that. No. Um, the book I'm looking at is called Volume 1, uh, is Volume Two uh, on the horizon? Is it available? Tell us
3: about that. Well, I'm doing some uh, today. I was doing some uh, proofreading of the uh, galley proofs for that, so I'm anticipating it probably will be out in June uh, or July at the latest. So in a few months, it ought to be available, and that takes the story through to the uh, end of the war, covering the campaigns in in Tennessee and so on.
1: And in just our last minute, let me put you on the Civil War talk radio time machine and ask if you could go back for 30 minutes into history, have one conversation with anyone in the Civil War era, and then return safely, who would you want to talk to? (laughs)
3: Wow, that's a a really good question. I suppose... I'm torn. I suppose I'd like to talk with Colonel Krzehennovsky only because I wrote his biography, and I'm wondering how close I got to the truth. Um, uh, but the other interesting person will be Carl Schurz because he was such <laughs> a uh, incredible force not during not only during the war, but uh, later as a reform uh, secretary of the Interior. So he's a
1: really interesting person too. Well, there are a lot of interesting characters in this book. Uh, I I recommend it, uh, listeners. It it was very entertaining and enlightening. takes a story we all know, the 11th Corps that ran away, and takes a fresh look at it, relying on original primary sources, just what historians are supposed to do. So, uh, Jim, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for joining us tonight. Jerry, thank you. I appreciate the invitation very much. And listeners, as always... Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.